This is the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agribusiness. If you're curious about innovations in ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, ag sustainability, or food security, this is the show for you. Let's get started. Hello, and thanks so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I am an agribusiness recruiter. What does that mean? That means if you know anybody looking to hire or be hired in the business of agriculture, uh, give them my email. My email is tim at aggrad.com. Recently, we had on the show Brady Sidwell, who was in international agribusiness in China, moved back to the family farm in Oklahoma and started doing uh, some rural entrepreneurial ventures. And I think I mentioned on that show, I'd like to do more episodes on rural entrepreneurship. It's one of the four pillars of the show. Uh, For a refresher, the four pillars of the show are ag tech, rural entrepreneurship, sustainability, and food security. So any topic you're going to hear on this show has to fit with at least one of those pillars, if not multiple. So we're talking here in December of 2018 is when this episode is coming out. In 2019, I would like to do more rural entrepreneurship related episodes. And and this really fits along that theme. We have on the show today, Devon Cook. Uh, Devon Cook is one of the founding partners of Ag Progress. Uh, Ag Progress is a consulting firm that works with primarily farming and ranching companies to provide them with tailored high impact services um, f- for uh, helping them grow their business or, or succession planning and that sort of thing. Uh, Devon specifically grew up uh, in West Texas near Lubbock on a cotton farm. Her family also owned the cotton gin in the area. Um, she has a, a, a very high powered background in working for McKinsey and Company, uh, doing some consulting both domestically and abroad. Uh, her and Lance Woodbury started this firm, Ag Progress, to help farming businesses, uh, both with succession planning and just with general management and development. I really enjoyed this from a self- selfish standpoint because I'm a small business owner and all of these principles directly applied to me, even though I'm not a farmer or rancher. I think you'll love it too. Devon's going to start off by talking about their service which they call family business advisors. Yeah, we call ourselves family business advisors, and I I recognize that's not a terribly descriptive or helpful title. Basically, we are working with um, production agriculture professionals, and that could be anything from crop to various livestock operations to ag processing and input dealers. Um, but primarily with businesses that are family owned or really closely held in a small number of, of owner partners. And with that dynamic of, of being family or closely owned, um, there's some unique dynamics that come into place. And we're, we're helping those businesses usually plan for some, some type of transition, whether it's a transition in ownership um, between generations or a transition in leadership that may take place over you know, a number of years. It's not a, a click in time. So helping them plan for and facilitate through some of the bumps in the road as they transfer between generations. That's a pretty typical client. Um, oftentimes as we get involved with them, we become strategic advisors for other growth in the business. Like lots of our clients, um, you know, as, as we've all heard, the size of production ag operations is increasing. And so with that, as, as their businesses get more sophisticated with more employees, there's a, there's a need for a little more structure and, and professionalization of how some of that, how some of the team is managed and developed. And, and we also help with that. 
All right, and we do have some listeners that aren't from a farming background or maybe even don't mm-hmm. work in agriculture. And I, I think most of us have probably heard that farms now are, are there's a lot more corporations in farming. And I, I think maybe there's some misnomers there about what a corporate farm is versus what a family farm is. The, the, the people you're working with generally are family owned, but often are corporations. Is that right? Yes. And you hit on my, one of my soapbox topics right away. So I'm pretty passionate about the fact that yes, we're working with big companies, um, you know, anywhere from, you know, one to five to 10 to a hundred million dollar revenue, some of these, these operations, but they are owned and operated and major ownership and, and most management decisions made by family members or a few, you know, very small number of key trusted employees. I actually kind of refreshed myself on some of the statistics thinking about today. Um, USDA published a study, I think about a year ago that, that profiled those sizes of farms and um, you know, over 90% of production of ag commodities in the U S is still from farms that are owned by a family. Now, like you said, they may be organized in an entity structure that's an LLC or a C corp or an S corp. um, But it's really family members making the decisions and that's definitely who we're working with. Cool. I mean, it sounds like a really interesting job because these are, like you said, they're very unique situations where you're of a family, they're having to work together. They own, you know, an asset that's, that's quite sizable. Uh, How'd you get into this? Yeah. So um, it's not a job you interview for typically coming out of college or even a profession you know about. (laughs) And I certainly didn't. Um, But when I look back, most of my professional life up to now has kind of led up to this, this kind of perfect nexus. Um, I actually grew up on a cotton farm near Lubbock, Texas, and my family also owned a cotton gin, which is basically manufacturing. And I was involved with those quite a bit growing up. Um, started my career after school in Chicago with McKinsey and Company, which is a global management consulting company. So working with Fortune 500 companies in all industries, but also had the opportunity while some of the time I was there to work with some ag, chem, and seed companies. Um, went on to ConAgra Foods from there, then moved back to Lubbock, Texas, and um, helped manage my family's cotton gin with my mom and dad and sister. So spent eight years doing that with them, um, and then we sold the business and spent a couple years helping through the transition after the sale. So I have lived a lot of the, the challenges that I, I work with clients on now, which is part of the reason I'm so passionate about it. Um, after that, that, um, got into various forms of consulting and one of the kind of fun, you know, very interesting and different things I did for my career up to that point was got the opportunity to work with the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation with some of the ag investments they were making in countries across Africa. Um, so did that. And then in the course of some business connections, um, met my now business partner, Lance Woodbury, who's my partner in ag progress and saw the work that he was doing um, around specifically family business facilitation. And I just realized that, you know, that was all the things I was passionate about is production ag, family business, and bringing the hard business skills that I had learned all along that journey into really helping these growing family businesses go to the next stage. Um, We have something called the life cycle family business. We can talk about a little bit later. And it's pretty common that most of our clients are at the stage where they're really, like I mentioned earlier, getting more sophisticated and, and applying some of the experiences I had had in corporate America um, became rele- is, is relevant to my family business clients today as well. So roundabout way of getting here, but um, really consider what I do an honor today to work with the, the production ag families that I do. 
And from working with McKinsey, who I, I think probably a lot of people know as, as being one of the, the you know, top tier sort of uh, consulting firms out there that work in all different industries, uh, from, from there to consulting with family farm businesses, and this may be a good time to even talk about that life cycle of a family business. What's unique about the client, the client type of work that you do now versus what you did, say, at McKinsey? Um, you know, I think a lot of the, the core business challenges are, are very similar. And like I said, our, as our farms get bigger, they become more and more similar, right? Um, but the, the life cycle that we talk about in family businesses, it's got four stages. So you can envision a progression down the continuum there. And you start out with a survival stage, which is, is startup. I mean, not unlike any business startup, whether it's family owned or not, but you're in survival stage. Um, you're struggling for just financial stability and in our context, it's often, um, you know, you're, you're financing all, all of your owner's compensation is, is 100% going right back into the business. You're just trying to, to get by. Mm -hmm. Then when you move to the next stage, which we call stable, um, hopefully you've had some profitable years in agriculture. As we all know, that can be up and down. Um, but in the stable stage, you're usually still owned by an individual or maybe a couple um, but you're having some net worth growth and potentially having some next generations return to the business. Then the third stage that we talk about is, is called professional. And I don't, I kind of have a little love hate relationship with that term because it, I don't mean it to imply that you weren't professional before that. <laughs> um, but the, the reason for that term in the third stage of professional is you're getting to a stage of complexity as, as ownership spreads to multiple generations. There may be siblings, there may be cousins, there may be you know, nephews and nieces, there may be um, potentially even an outside owner or two. At that point, it's getting more complex and therefore your business has got to get more sophisticated in some of the structure and policies. Um, this is where we see people really needing to formalize roles and responsibilities. Um, you know, maybe before when it was just a few of us, we were all able to do everything in the business, whether it was drive the tractor, take care of the feedlot, or, you know, send in the financials. And at this point, at this stage, we're seeing that there's a lot more specialization of roles and probably a lot more need for intentional recruiting and finding people with the right skill set. Hmm. And then the fourth stage we talk about is institutional. And, and frankly, a lot of my clients may never aspire to this. It will be relevant for some and not others. Institutional is where we say there's most likely a mix of family and non-family owners. Um, you may even have situations where family owners are, are not managers in the business at all. It's definitely an arm's length um, ownership and, and you typically have a pretty, um, pretty sophisticated and, and disciplined board of directors managing the business. So if you think about those four stages, survival, stable, professional, and institutional, a lot of our clients are in some transition or mix of stable and professional. So they're feeling the growing pains of that professional stage of just kind of everything getting bigger and, and more complex. Hmm. And, and typically, what does that look like uh, from, a, from a client engagement standpoint? I mean, when are they going to say, oh, wow, we really need to go seek out someone like Ag Progress to help us through this? Yeah. So, you know, we would often say that there's some, there's some stress on the system when, when you come find us um, because of that natural life cycle of the business. And so, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of systems theory, but it's just sort of the concept that any, any organism, any organization is, is made of, of, of several pieces. And oftentimes when you change thing in one, when you change something in one aspect of the organization, 
um, there's there's movement other places. It has it has an impact on the entire system itself. And so we talk about systems a lot in our work in the context of, of families as a system and the business itself. Hmm. So what would that what would that system be? Um, the stresses that we would typically see are um, maybe it's around ownership transitions. So sometimes that's as simple as um, an owner kind of feeling their mortality and realizing, hey, I'm 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 nearing retirement years, and I really better figure out what um, that transition to the next generation is going to look like. I should figure out my estate plan. Maybe their attorney and accountant have been pounding them for you know, hey, you need to get more assertive in your tax planning, um, you know, right or wrong, that is often a driver. So estate planning stresses can be one side of it. Um, the other side, which is, is often more complex even, is the, the transitions in leadership, which we would call succession planning. Who's going who's gonna to be the next successor at, at running the business? Um, and what that looks like is, it, you know, it could be, any version of, hey, we've got future potential future owners or we've got next generation family members that want to return to the business. So maybe they come to us and say, hey, we want to write some good guidelines for how we decide if you're going to be employed here. So we would call those family employment guidelines. So that would be making decisions around, you know, what, what are our expectations of someone coming back here as, a, as an employee? Is, what education do we expect? Um, do we ask them to work elsewhere before they return? How are we going to decide whether to hire them or not? Who's going to make that decision? Who's going to manage them? Kind of all those decisions around, again, trying to be a professional organization and, and insert some discipline into that process, even though you may be, you know, parent and child working together. So family employment guidelines might be one stress that they start feeling. Um, we, other stresses we see would be um, next gens are already back working in the business and Maybe they came in originally in a training mode of, hey, I'm just going to jump in and learn everything I can. And, and now they're five, six years into it. And they're really ready to get some clarity on what is my actual role? What do I have decision making authority over? Um, you know, maybe we're running over each other, um, parent and child or or even business partners of the same age. We suddenly need a little more structure around who's going to make what decisions because it not only causes conflict between the individuals involved, um, as, as the business gets bigger with more employees, it starts causing confusion and frustration with the whole employee team. So that's also a, a common stress that, that we often see. Nice. And you may or may not believe this, but just yesterday I Googled systems theory because I, I, I thought I knew what it was, uh, but it, I had no idea you were going to say that, obviously. <laughs> I thought I knew what it was, but I'm like, I really want to understand this. And the re where it came from for me is like thinking through like, okay, what three core competencies do I need to continue to develop from, for my business? And, and what I came up with was, was uh, sales, storytelling, and systems. I just need better and more, you know, uh, more refined business systems. And so that, that kind of led me down one of those internet rabbit holes where I was <laughs> what systems theory was. So it's really funny you mentioned that, but, uh, and, and I don't know if you can answer this or not, but uh, are you ever brought in for the type of situation where somebody's like, Hey, Devon, I need you to come in and, and fire my brother. <laughs> Cause he's not working out. I have never heard that. No, okay. All right. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm being sarcastic. Yes. I mean, frankly, you know, when things are going great, you, you don't typically have, feel a need to call us. So often 
we are brought in when there's significant interpersonal conflict. And that could be around skill gaps where, you know, truly someone's not, not able to, to succeed at their job. Lots of times it's not skill gaps. It's, it's just personality conflicts. Like we all have, you know, we've all had personality conflicts in the workplace, but it's magnified in a family business because of, of the multiple hats you wear. Um, and I, we, we talk about the hats you wear, or there's another model called the three circles of family business. So if you imagine a Venn diagram with three circles that overlap, you know, a bit in the middle, we say that you have three roles in family business. Oftentimes you can be an owner. Um, you can be a member of management or, or an employee. I mean, you could be active in the management of the business and you're a family member. And with all three of those hats to wear, where they overlap, there can be a lot of conflict. Um, because maybe in your example of, I need you to find my brother, um, you know, maybe one brother is boss to the other brother in the management circle, but in the ownership circle, they're equal owners. And, you know, in the family circle, let's just make up a hypothetical of, um, you know, the brother that, that we think needs fired is, is older and is the, you know, the senior sibling. So you can imagine how we, the, all, the roles in all three of those circles can get pretty muddled and cause, cause conflict. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, 75, 80% of what we do is probably working with, with the business to bring some definition to when are we in which circle? Are we having, you know, are we having a management team meeting right now or are we having a family discussion about, um, you know, how we're worried about John's kids, you know, and, and oftentimes those conversations are happening in the same gathering and people have different expectations and, and different understandings of which conversation they're having, if you will. I hope that was a clear description. <laughs> yeah, no, that's really interesting with the, with sort of the Venn diagram, because you don't think about that. If you're talking to the same people generally about the same topics, you, you don't think about you know, really trying to define the meeting beforehand, but I could see where that could get really uh, complicated and, and even uh, heated. Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing I know the answer here, but I, I still want to ask the question, uh, the, the farm of 2018, I mean, your clients versus the farm of like 1998, you know, how, how, are, these, how are these farming operations different that may lend itself to maybe needing more of the type of service you provide? Well, so one's obviously all the technology we're using today and, and you do tons of podcasts on that. So I don't need to elaborate on that, but, but obviously our clients are, are always adapting new technology that's going to impact, you know, the profitability of their business, but Hey, also impacts other things in that system, right? I mean, it impacts um, a different skill set we may need in the office. So we may, you know, so mom may have been able to handle the books in QuickBooks, but now, you know, something's happened and we need to change software to something else. And, and there's, um, you know, there's a skill challenge there and no, no hits on moms. Cause I know a lot of fantastic, <laughs> fantastic moms that are, that are the financial whizzes of their businesses. But, um, so as that technology comes in and that goes all the way through to the tractor, to the pig barn everywhere, um, those skill gaps become more apparent with that technology and so, um, and in additional skill gaps we're seeing as these farms get larger, like we talked about, um, you know, they're needing more specialized skills in financial management. Like we have a number of clients that are getting really um, more disciplined about saying, hey, we need to hire an actual 
controller and a CFO or controller or CFO. Mm -hmm. We need to hire a financial professional that that's all they do because that's a huge part of, of success in their business today. Um, they know they've got to get a lot better skill sets in HR and they may choose to hire that out or they may choose to develop that expertise internally. But either way, um, we're seeing the, the talent needs change, I think, a lot from where they were 20, 30 years ago when you could a little bit more be jack of all trades. Yeah, um, I could see where that would be an easy sort of trap to fall into, which is just like, hey, um, you know, Bob does this. Bob's always done that. So we're writing a job description based on what Bob's always done. Right. But maybe that's not the way the org structure should be set up, you know, strategically. Is that often a problem you see? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, and, you know, I think of it as we don't need more people per acre because obviously that number is going down, but we need different skill sets per acre. And, and I think that's going to be a huge evolution. If you look 20 years out, um, yeah, we may have more robotics, we may have automation, all these things, but we're still going to need the skill sets to manage that puzzle. Yeah. No, I, I, I have even, I've kind of fallen in the same trap where it's like, boy, I've got this group of people that's really passionate about what we do at AgGrad or, or passionate about this podcast. What can I design as a job description for them to be involved with this? Because I want them to be <laughs> It's like, yeah. okay, that's not a good way to grow a business at all. Uh, and I mean, let's be honest, it's not entirely wrong either. I mean, I, I'm, I'm realistic that we're not going to replace everyone with the perfect hire. Um, we're going to manage around some of those, you know, really valuable folks that, that have been part of our team. And we're going to figure that out. But as you're kind of, I, I think our, our farm managers and business owners are getting more strategic about, okay, what's the five-year talent plan? So, hey, if I... I know so-and-so is retiring in a few years. What do I need to be hiring now to replace them? Um, actually had clients be really proactive about that and, and thinking of, okay, hey, we've got some key people retiring three, five years down the road. They actually made a timeline of, you know, two years from now, we need to be hiring this position so that they can have two years of training before so-and-so retires um, and so forth. And that's succession plan. I mean, that is the definition of succession planning. <laughs> Since you got into this business, and what's it, it's been a few years now since you've been doing this? Yeah, I've been doing this since 2012. Oh, okay. So yeah, it's been over six years now. Uh, what's what's kind of surprised you most? I mean, what you thought when you first started down that road versus what uh, your practice looks like now and, and kind of what's what surprised you most about the industry here? Hmm. You know, I think the value of having the tough conversations is, is it continues to surprise me on a weekly basis because sometimes I, I go into it thinking, you know, this, this doesn't seem that revolutionary. Am I, am I really helping or, and I'll give you an example. Um, it is not uncommon at all for one of the, one of the early things we do with a client is to set up the first ownership meeting that would involve maybe the current owners and the next generation owners or the potential future owners. And let's just say it's a situation, I'll take a typical row crop operation where, um, you know, we have three kids and one of them, one or two of them are here farming and, and the third is off, you know, somewhere else pursuing another career successfully. Um, it's pretty common entity structure in ag these days that, that, that our clients will sort of separate land as, as a bucket of assets that may be inherited by all those children. Um, and then the operating entity of the farm that's, you know, generating the profit may be owned by, by just those that are active in the business. So setting up that first family meeting where we get all those folks together and talk about, okay, how is this going to work in the future? 
Um, how's it going to work when your sibling is your landlord eventually or a partner in your land entity? Um, how are we going to make decisions together? What communication can be expected um, between all of us in the future or even today? I mean, what communication is expected today? But I'm always stunned how even that first meeting that seems pretty elementary um, is so valuable. I, I always have next gens email me the week after and say, thank you so much for making that meeting happen. Wow. I've been trying to get mom and dad to talk about that for, for years. Hmm. Um, and so that's just one example. I mean, I've been in lots of other much tougher conversations that maybe were about interpersonal conflict or, um, you know, conflict between partners. And, you know, it's just, it always strikes me how valuable those conversations are. We have a, a saying that communications like oil in the engine. Um, you don't really pay attention to it till it's not there. And that's when things start hurting and those stresses start happening. Yeah. Um, so that's one of my surprises that I continue to, to remind, be reminded of regularly is, is how powerful that is. Definitely have heard the facts about, you know, businesses having a hard time surviving from one generation to another, which, which obviously speaks directly to the service that you offer. Um, tell me more about that. I mean, is it true that it's really difficult to make it to the third or fourth generation or beyond that? Is that true in the farm context as well? You know, that statistic is used so widely. And, you know, I think it started in good intention, probably of, of just, focusing on how do we help these family businesses. But frankly, it's a bit of a pet peeve and soapbox of mine <laughs> um, for a number of reasons. First one being that the original statistic you hear all the time that 3% of family businesses survive a third generation. Um, that was from a study in, in 1987. So 30 plus years ago. Um, and there's been a few attempts to update through time, but generally it, it's old data. And, and you can also imagine our data gathering ability have have changed since then. I think the original study flipped through industrial directories to see if the name was still there year after year. Oh, <laughs> um, but beyond that, I mean, there's probably some statistic that you know there definitely is a life cycle and, and a success rate. So let's just assume that you know that's the right number. When you think about what does that mean, three or four generations? That's a hundred years. Um, which is actually pretty impressive. That's not a bad thing. Um, a, a gentleman from the Family Business Consulting Group did an exercise a few years ago that he's written about where he looked at the Dow Jones Industrial Average and only one company out of those 30 was on there for 100 years. So, you know, a survival rate of 100 years is pretty darn good for a family business competing with, with a public company. And just an anecdote, the only one that was on there, that one company was GE, which recently fell off. <laughs> um, so, you know, but beyond the, the statistical problems here, I think the, the big picture is, and we're starting to talk about this a lot more in my professional discipline, is what does it mean to survive? Um, so is success only defined by one specific business, you know, Smith Family Farms, um, surviving in that form, growing the same thing for hundreds of years or, or decades? Is that the only definition of success? And, and we shift the conversation to be about inter, not firm survival, but enterprising families, um, meaning that the business ventures you're in may morph and evolve over generations. Um, you may exit one space and, and morph into something entirely different. And maybe when you morphed, you, you know, maybe the family's ownership did split into three different branches and they went off and did three different things. 
but that's not necessarily, I mean, that, that doesn't make it unsuccessful or failure. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's evolving. Yeah, it's evolving. And that's good. I mean, the, an enterprising family that's continuing to succeed and deploy resources wherever they're doing it. Um, that that's a positive thing. So I just, I don't like the way that statistic is used as a scare tactic sometimes of, you know, you're going to fail if you're not a fifth generation family farm. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of other successful forks in that road along the way. And do you ever, does it ever become uh, a situation where the best thing to do is, is for family to say, look, this obviously isn't working or is that usually, you know, are you usually able to kind of interfere before they get to that point? No, I would say a fair portion of our work is, is um, sometimes families come to us knowing they're ready to split and they say, Hey, we want you to help figure out how to do this amicably and appropriately. Um, Sometimes they may not come to us with that outcome, but that, that is the outcome after, after we try to work through other solutions. And again, that's not always bad. I mean, I, we, we can give many examples of clients who five or 10 years after, after a, a split in the business say, man, that's the best thing we did. We should have done it sooner. Mm-hmm. So uh, just don't assume that that's, that's failure. If you're doing the right thing for, for your family or for the business's health or your personal desires and goals. Um, you know, we don't, I don't want to portray that we go into it trying to split people up. Um, but but it's, it's not necessarily a bad outcome. There's something we, another saying we have that certainty can be as valuable as agreement. And oftentimes when you hire us to come in, yes, your goal is get us to agree. Um, but somewhere along the way, having some certainty about the situation, like, you know, we tried to have all these crucial conversations about how, you know, Jamie is going to change her, her dedication to the business. But, um, you know, we've tried all these things and it's, it's not going to change. So I, I have some certainty of, okay, here is the situation. And, and now I make decisions based on that certainty, which, which could be change in the business. Well, uh, ten, 10 years from now, uh, how do you think the landscape might look differently for you as far as the, the clients you serve, what they look like, if they're any different or the, the problems you solve? I'm just curious about your kind of glimpse on the future of, of the farm. Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think we're going to, we're likely to see more outside capital inserted into some of these family operations. So I don't know whether that technically makes them still a family farm or not. I definition wise, but I think they're still managed by this core group of, of, you know, family members that are, they're locally there. But I think as they start accepting some investment, um, that's going to just drive even harder the need for, um, you know, more sophisticated business structures and processes and transparency and financial reporting and, and all those things that we're already working with them on now. I think that will accelerate. Um, I think our world's getting smaller and, you know, just the work I did for a few years with the Gates Foundation across Africa, you know, obviously that's those production systems are drastically different than ours, but I think we'll continue to see investments happening in those other places around the world um, where there's still an opportunity to increase ag production. And so I think some of our clients could very well be involved in that down the road, which will be exciting to, to see and be part of. Um, Do you work with international clients currently? I don't currently. Um, You know, there are, 
Well, that's not true. I, we do have a few clients who have some international investments, but I, we're not actively involved in those. Very cool. Well, I, based on your background and what you do now, I bet you have some phenomenal uh, productivity and management tips. And so I'm going to ask for just maybe a couple minutes of free consulting, if you don't mind here, <laughs> to share uh, maybe one or two of your best advice related to either building teams or just personal productivity in general. This is a little segment we've started calling our manager minute. Uh, I liked this question that you prepared me for because it, it made me think, um, you know, from a time management perspective, I kind of have, I've tried a few things over the years and I go back to a classic Harvard Business School time management book. I have a copy that I think is from the eighties maybe, <laughs> but this concept of first of all, set goals in A, B, and C priority categories. And then um, from a time management perspective, when you've got your to-do list, it also needs to be in those A, B, and C categories. So you're just matching up, hey, how do I, where do I prioritize my time against the goals? And one way I've, I mean, I literally have a list on my de desk of, you know, big yellow sheet pad of all the to-dos that, that are in A, B, and C categories. So I find that just really actionable and practical. There's a gajillion ways you can tackle time management, but at the end of the day, keeping me trying to keep me focused on the A ones instead of some of the C ones that might be more interesting to do um, <laughs> is helpful. I think big picture, just my personal goal that I, as I mature in my life and in my career, I'm really trying to keep myself focused on developing and deploying wisdom. And um, it's easier said than done, but I, there's a quote I love that um, says, knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in fruit salad. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not there yet, but I'm trying to keep my eye on that prize of like, um, you know, I need to get wiser. It's not always about getting smarter or more knowledge. It's about reflecting on judgment and, and how do I handle the situation? And that's obviously pretty important in our work. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of personal aspects of it and, and trying to make myself stop and think about, okay, what's the wise approach here um, as opposed to maybe the most time efficient or the easiest or, um, you know, maybe sometimes I can predict what the outcome is going to be six months from now, but I have to be wise in discerning how to get the rest of my clients there um, in a way that works for them. Thank you very much to Devon Cook for being on the show. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you're entrepreneurial and intellectually curious, I bet you are because you're listening to the show. I think you probably really enjoyed that conversation. A quick plug here for the AgGrad 30 Under 30. We are trying to highlight 30 individuals who are still in their 20s doing interesting work in the world of agriculture. Uh, we're going to highlight these individuals in some really cool ways that we're rolling out. But I would love for you right now to just take a minute go to 30under30.ag and nominate somebody. It'll take you really like just a minute and it could mean a lot to them. So think of somebody in their 20s that you've just been impressed by who works in agriculture and uh, we would love to hear all about them. Uh, that's 30under30.ag. There's no .com there. It's just the number 30 under the, the number 30.ag. Thanks so much. We will be back next week and Merry Christmas. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast. If you like what you heard here today, I'd love to connect with you further. 
over to futureofag.com. That's futureofag.com. And let me know a good email address for you so we can keep in touch. Also, you'll be able to check out a ton of bonus content on the blog while you're there. Otherwise, make sure you're subscribed to the show so you can catch another fascinating ag innovator here next week. Thank you.